Well, just when you thought the uh, Supreme Court was irrelevant and uh, lacked the intestinal fortitude to take cases, hear arguments, or render decisions, uh, as was the case when many of us expressed great disappointment in the aftermath of their inability to hear a single case on the election fraud of 2020, uh, they come down with a sweeping decision to smack the Biden administration right across the back of the head and remind them that they are not God, they're not dictators, and they simply can't do whatever they want because it's what they want to do. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. The simplest way would be to go to either the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, depending on which device you use. Rely on your native podcast aggregator app, which comes with those operating systems, and search out the Jamie Dury Show podcast and click subscribe. If you prefer a third-party podcast aggregator app, you can download the free Podbean app in either of those two stores, which is our hosting service, and you can Subscribe to the show by searching out The Jamie Dury Show on the Podbean app. Either way, it's free. Either way, you can leave reviews, make comments. You could email me directly with a question at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com. And we desperately need uh, those reviews. Give us a five-star review. Leave us a good comment. The more reviews and positive comments we get, the faster the show will grow. And the more the show grows, the more we'll be able to do for you in terms of offerings. So, what actually happened today at the United States Supreme Court? Well, we had a bit of a split decision. There were two things at issue before the court. The big one was the mandate by the Biden administration uh, relying on the authority of OSHA uh, to compel employers, private employers, not the government, uh, who employ 100 people or more to force those employees to get vaccinated. And the Supreme Court answered resoundingly that that was an overreach on the part of the government. In a separate decision, talking about the ability of the government to require health care workers because of authority under Medicare uh, went a little differently, narrowly 5-4 in favor of the government, but the original decision, the big one, a slam dunk 6-3 against the Biden administration. So let's unpack it all and explain to you what actually is going on. Now, the rulings came down today. A bunch of businesses and uh, many other states, Ohio, Missouri, Louisiana, and two dozen more, asked for both of these federal mandates to be blocked. Now, one of the men that uh, has been following this is uh, Robert Henneke of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, the ruling, he said, allowing compulsory vaccination of healthcare workers, which is the one that where the government won, is a terrible decision that is going to result in people dying. But we'll get more on that in due course. Let's take the first decision. By a 6-3 vote, the Supreme Court voted to block the mandate issued by OSHA, finding that the challenge to it was likely to succeed. Now, this mandate would have forced employers with 100 people or more into their employ, 
which is most of the nation's private workforce, to subject their employees to vaccinations or to regular testing to detect it. Now, this decision broke right along partisan lines. All of the conservatives on the court, that would be the Chief Justice John Roberts, appointed by George W. Bush, Clarence Thomas, the longest-serving justice, appointed by George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Bush, Samuel Alito, appointed by George Herbert um, George W. Bush, and Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, all appointed by Donald Trump. They are the ones that found in favor. Not surprisingly, Elena Kagan and Sotomayor, who made up her own facts last week when she said that 100,000 kids are on ventilators, the woman must be smoking crack herself. Not true. She was fact-checked on that. And Justice Stephen Breyer, an appointee of the Clinton administration, the other two women appointed by Obama, they voted uh, in favor of the government. But here's what the majority stated. Administrative agencies are creatures of statute, they're referring to OSHA, and possess only the authority that Congress has provided. The Secretary has ordered 84 million Americans to either obtain a COVID-19 vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. This is no everyday exercise of federal power. It is instead a significant encroachment into the lives and health of a vast number of employees. Now, OSHA was trying to do this, um, and the administration was trying to do this via OSHA, saying, well, we have a right to make the workplace safer. But the court was very, very good here, and they made a very good distinction as to why uh, this is not a workplace issue. Quote, Although COVID-19 is a risk that occurs in many workplaces, it is not an occupational hazard in most. COVID-19 can and does spread at home, in schools, during sporting events, and everywhere else that people gather, the opinion continues. And that's true. Trying to, t- to limit COVID by saying, well, if you work for somebody, your employer is going to have to make you get vaccinated or you're going to have to submit to weekly testing. It's rather like what you've probably run into in some places in these crazy blue states. I live in Manhattan. You walk into my building and if you don't put your mask on, people say, where's your mask? Where's your mask? And this same person who's mask happy is the same person you see driving a car with no one in it and wearing a mask, protecting themselves from who, and protecting who from what, I don't understand. And these same people will happily walk into a restaurant with their mask on, and as soon as they're seated, take it off, and be in a restaurant with a hundred other people who are breathing and maybe coughing or whatever, and perceive no risk at all. It's just an upside-down world. So because the risk of COVID-19 is not specific or isolated to the workplace, but happens everywhere... They're saying you can't shoehorn this into an OSHA regulation and try and use OSHA to regulate it. And as I said, all of the Democratic appointees, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, would have allowed it to go forward. Their dissenting opinion states that the court seriously misapplies the applicable legal standard 
and stymies the federal government's ability to counter the unparalleled threat that COVID-19 poses to our nation's workers. Now, I'm going to go back to the additional ruling about the healthcare workers in a moment, but let's just talk about this fact that they assert that the COVID-19 is an unparalleled threat posed to our nation's workers. I've got statements here from two other members, one a member of the administration and one a former member of the administration and of the Obama administration. Dr. Phony Fauci, who's still a member of the administration, this son of a bitch should be tied down to a a gurney and injected with every experimental virus known to man for what he did funding that Wuhan lab, that traitorous bastard. He's the chief White House medical advisor, and he said in an interview that aired Sunday on Face the Nation, I believe, that, quote, that he believes people will have to begin living with COVID, expressing doubt that the virus will be eradicated. Speaking to host Margaret Brennan on CBS's Face the Nation, Fauci touched on previous remarks in which he said he would like to see daily infections fall below 10,000 in order for the U.S. to be able to live with COVID. Brennan noted that the current COVID-19 infection rates are now approaching 80,000 a day. But most people are getting infected with the Omicron variant and they're not getting very sick at all. Now, does that word sound familiar? You're going to have to learn to live with it. Somebody else said that a couple of years ago, and he was roundly denounced. That was President Trump in a debate, says we're going to have to learn to live with it. We can live with it. And then, of course, sleepy Joe Biden, who suffers from dementia, says, live with it. People are learning to die with it. Well, why doesn't Joe Biden say that now and denounce his advisor, his chief advisor, who's saying we're going to have to learn to live with it. See, the positions people take depend on whether they're in office or out of office. What Donald Trump said wasn't wrong. It was very accurate. But he was the one in power, and he was the one they were trying to get out of power. So everything he said had to be wrong. But it isn't just phony Fauci. Do you remember this piece of work, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel? In case you forget, I'll remind you. He was a big player in the Obama administration. He was the one that came under the thumb of a lot of criticism. Uh, of course, if you read left-wing sites, they'll say he only came under criticism from Republicans because they were opposing health care reform. But he was the death panel guy. Betsy McCahey described him as the deadly doctor. But he said a lot of things. Um, on former Senator Fred Thompson's radio program, Betsy McCahey warned that the health care reform bill would make it mandatory, absolutely require that every five years people in Medicare have a required counseling session that will tell them how to end their life sooner. She said those sessions would help the elderly learn how to, de- to decline nutrition, how to decline being hydrated, how to go into hospice, all to do what's in society's best interest or in your family's best interest and cut your life short. Because that's pretty expensive to go on living when you're sick. Conservative pundits compared Nazi Germany's T4 euthanasia program to Obama's policies as far back as November 2008, calling them America's T4 program. Trivialization of abortion, acceptance of euthanasia, and the normalization of physician-assisted suicide. This guy is a twisted 
piece of work, Ezekiel Emmanuel. Uh, he's hardly someone I would go to for medical advice. But even he is now saying uh, he was with the Obama administration, once again, but a former member of the Biden administration. The United States is experiencing a surge in COVID-19 cases. But despite this, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel states that the virus is one that the public will have to learn to live with. This was on Meet the Press. He discussed how vaccines, new treatments, and other relief measures could help make the coronavirus more manageable and akin to the flu. We think over the course of 2022, we will get to an endemic stage, and the plan is or proposes we need a strategic plan. Look, COVID-19 is a virus. It's not going to go away. COVID is a form of flu. It's a form of cold in terms of its structure. This one was genetically engineered. We know this now. Emails that have leaked have proven that they knew from Jump Street that it didn't happen from a bowl of bat soup. It was cooked up in a laboratory and it escaped uh, as a consequence of what is known as gain-of-function research. A form of research that even the Obama administration expressly forbade be conducted in the United States. So this piece of garbage, Fauci, goes and sends a grant to China and lets them do it in the Wuhan lab and look what it has wrought. It looks like President Obama was very correct in his justified fear of gain and function research getting out of control and causing just what it has caused. But even within that, ladies and gentlemen, I have to remind you of those statistics I gave you uh, about a week and a half ago when I talked about pandemics and putting this in historical perspective. The bubonic plague, which is probably the pandemic in the history of the world, wiped out almost half the population of Europe. And even today, if you don't get treatment, uh, the bubonic plague is very, very, very severe. Even if you do get treatment, there's a very, very high death rate, about 15%, I believe, 10 to 15%, even with treatment. That's very high in the modern world with modern medicine. Now, fortunately, we've got it under control. It still exists in third world countries. Mm -hmm. And speaking of which, no one wants to address the issue that the spike we're getting in many of these COVID cases and other diseases, which had since been eradicated from the United States, uh, couldn't possibly be because we have a porous southern border with every third world shitbird being allowed to walk across it. No, no one wants to address that. But that's an aside. Now, let's move on to something more modern, the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920. Now, at that time, as I said in the program a week and a half ago, the population of the world was 1.8 billion people, about a fourth of what it is now. 500 million people were infected with the Spanish flu and is estimated to kill anywhere from 56 million to 100 million people, depending who you listen to. The population of the world now, I said, is four times as large, seven and three quarter billion people. And yet this coronavirus has killed just over five million people. Now, I'm not trivializing that. I'm sure it's not insignificant to the five million people who died or to their families who remain. But five million, which is a tenth at best of the number the Spanish flu killed, if you assume that we only had 50 million people die from it, 
or a 20th of what the Spanish flu killed, if you assume we had 100 million deaths, when you have a population that is four times as large, you begin to realize that this is not a pandemic on the order of what a real pandemic from a historical perspective is. It really isn't. And the overwhelming majority of those 5 million people were people who already had risk factors, were very elderly, or in otherwise compromised states of health. Now, I'm sorry, but life is a mortal condition. No one gets out alive. We all die from something. Eventually, life comes to an end. And much of what determines our longevity is, number one, our genetics, and two, our life choices. I, um, I remember a story once my mother was talking to my wife about a neighbor of ours and talking about how chemicals can affect your life. And she was a uh, seamstress. She worked in a factory and the fibers got into her lungs. And she said, uh, you know, that's what ultimately killed her, you know, was those fibers got into her lungs. And my wife was sitting there very serious, uh, thinking, obviously, that the woman was cut down prematurely. So I was sitting there, and I, I finally had to speak up and said, well, Ma, I said, in all fairness to the fibers, they did wait till Mrs. Bucci was 89 years old before they struck her down, and my wife almost choked on her coffee. Look, uh, I knew Mrs. Bucci. She was a wonderful lady. I, I loved her. She was a neighbor of ours. Everybody's life comes to an end, and dying at 89 years old is not exactly considered premature death. When we're losing people who are 90 years old and so forth, this is not premature death. The only thing I will tell you that's a tragedy of these elderly people dying was that many of them needn't have died at all if it wasn't for the gross mismanagement of the governors in these blue states who, in their thirst for COVID funding— jammed as many people as they could into every state or local facility so they could count the deaths in their state. Uh, Il Duce, the former idiot governor of the state of New York, uh, Andrew Benito Cuomo, is responsible for the deaths of thousands of people in New York State nursing homes. Now, nursing homes, by definition, are populated by people in compromised states of health, people who really can't afford to be exposed to something like this. So why in God's green earth would you mandate that if they had an empty bed that they take COVID-19 positive patients, especially when the president at that time, and I saw it, built a hospital in the Javits Center that could have held 3,000 people. They didn't send them 250 patients. And still, with that underused hospital, he cried even more and begged for the hospital ship. And they sent 100 patients there. They finally took the ship back. Why? Because if they died in those federal facilities, they wouldn't count as the state's death toll and they wouldn't get the money. This was contemptible. It was beneath contempt. All those elderly people in those nursing homes needn't have died. And then to have the unmitigated goal to blame it on the workers and saying the workers brought it in, not the COVID-19 patients you put in there. Once again, if you're not a regular follower of this program, last year when I spoke about this issue on a broadcast, I prove to you the falsity of that assertion on the part of the former governor, because there was a county-owned nursing home in an upstate county 
on the eastern border of New York. It borders um, Vermont, I believe, Rensselaer County. No, not Vermont, Massachusetts, I think. Rensselaer County. The county executive very quietly told that nursing home, do not take any COVID-19 patients. Do not make a big deal of it because we know how vindictive the governor can be. So they slipped under the radar. They didn't allow any COVID-19 patients to be admitted to that nursing home. Do you know how many deaths they had from COVID-19 among the residents that were there already? If you guess zero, you win the prize. They had none. Now, they still had staff coming in and out, so so much for the staff bringing it in. The governor brought it in. Ditto for Governor Whitmer, who did the same thing in Michigan. Ditto for the idiot Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania. Ditto for Governor Newsom in California. There was no need for any of this. Ditto for Murphy in New Jersey. So... Learning to live with it is going to be a reality. Now, let's get back to the Supreme Court. They also ruled on that other issue. Let me give you some more pull quotes from an article on this. Now, that fellow Robert Henke, um, who represented that Texas coalition I told you about earlier, um, was pleased with the win but he was wary of the reasoning adopted by the court. Quote, without the constitutional questions being taken on by the Supreme Court, we've won the battle te- today, but still are left fighting the war. In other words, he wanted the Supreme Court not only to slam down the, rule, the, um, the mandate, but also to cite more constitutional reasons for it as a government overreach, not simply uh, the fact that um, Congress did not invest OSHA with that kind of authority when they created the statute that created OSHA. He wanted to say that the Constitution itself would prevent the government from investing that kind of power in any regulatory agency. That it just isn't, it isn't theirs to give. That's what he wanted. It's the correct outcome, quote, but unfortunately the majority opinion misses the forest for the trees because it doesn't address, except in touching reference, the bigger constitutional issues or defects in the Biden administration's claim of authority. By narrowly ruling on a very focused textual statutory analysis of the OSHA statute, which is what I just described to you in lay terms, the court invites further creativity by this administration to look for other statutes to claim novel and unprecedented power. This gets back to what I just told you. He wanted them to slam it down on constitutional grounds because once they've done that, the administration cannot circumvent it and cannot revisit the issue. And they probably should have done that. Jim Burling, who's the vice president of legal affairs for the Pacific Legal Foundation, said he was pleased... The OSHA ruling limits executive branch authority. Yes, I'm pleased too. But like Mr. Hennigy, I wish it would have gone further. Now, moving on to the second decision the court rendered, the Supreme Court, in a narrow decision, voted 5-4 to lift the lower court stays that had prevented enforcement of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, 
emergency regulation, finding the government's challenge to it would probably be successful. The rule now in effect requires more than 10 million employees at healthcare facilities that participate in the Medicare and Medicaid programs to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Now, in this case, naturally, all three of the liberal judges joined, Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor, and they sided with the government in the court's opinion in Biden versus Missouri. Two conservatives on the court, Roberts, not surprisingly, since he's a quasi-conservative, but very disappointingly, Brett Kavanaugh, also sided with the government. The majority opinion states, Congress did grant authority to the health secretary to promulgate regulations he considers necessary to protect health and safety. Although a a vaccination mandate is unprecedented, so they agree with that, we agree with the government that the secretary's rule falls within the authorities that Congress has conferred upon him. Now, I don't know who wrote that decision, because it doesn't say here who wrote it. But Thomas wrote the dissenting opinion and was joined in that opinion by Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett. And he uses some very powerful reasoning here. Listen. The case is, quote, only about whether HHS has the statutory authority to force healthcare workers by coercing their employers to undergo a medical procedure they do not want and cannot undo because the government has not made a strong showing that Congress gave HHS that broad authority. I would deny the stays pending appeal. Levy said the HSS ruling was a closer call than the OSHA ruling. Reason being, he says, quote, you can always make an argument about how somehow this is regulating occupational safety and health, as the court said, where this is really about regulating public health, and that's not within OSHA's power. But with the HHS case, it was more of a closer fit. Anyone listening to that argument would have said, yeah, when I think of regulating healthcare facilities and healthcare workers, this seems like a natural fit. Whereas the other, mandating all employers to make their workers get it, uh, that was making them do something that really has no relationship to employment. But Mr. Henneke from the Texas Coalition was very, very critical of the HS mandate ruling. I think it's a terrible decision, and I'm fearful that it's going to be immediately disastrous and disruptive to our healthcare industry, and it's going to result in people dying. The ruling gives far too much deference to a broad and vague reading of an ambiguous statute related to HHS that the Biden administration claimed gave this authority to the federal government. The decision will inflict damage on the health care system, he said, and will lead to layoffs and staffing shortages because there are people who are going to simply choose their safety and say, I'm not getting this vaccination. I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm not. If it's a choice between continuing to work or not working, if I don't get the vaccine, I'm just going to quit. So that's not going to solve anything. That's not going to make anything better. It makes things dangerous and damaging. Rural areas, he said, especially 
already have a very difficult time in obtaining sufficient workers to provide staffing for rural health care needs. And let me ask you this. How legitimate is this argument that the government is making for health care and hospital workers? How legitimate is it for the Supreme Court to validate that argument when we've seen in recent weeks that this Omicron variant is spreading so rapidly and infecting so many people, including healthcare workers, that these facilities that employ them are saying, hey, look, if you don't feel too bad and you don't have any symptoms, we don't care if you got COVID. Come on in and work. We'll try and keep you working with just people who are already COVID positive. So if they're content to allow COVID positive healthcare workers to come in because the staffing shortages are that great, why, as a matter of public policy, would you increase that potential staffing shortage by compelling these vaccinations? It makes no sense. But then not much that the Biden administration does on anything makes much sense. You know, when you look at these, these actions on the part of the government, this overreach, this perversion of both statutory and executive authority, uh, you're given to wonder about the irony of it all. The people who opposed Donald Trump tried to say he was divisive. They tried to say that he was a fascist, a white supremacist, or sympathized with white supremacists. None of it was true. All of it was lies. They spent $30 million trying to prove that he colluded with Russia. He did no such thing. One of his main accusers, Eric Swalwell, congressman from California, uh, is himself in bed with a Chinese harlot who was a spy for the Chinese government and helped give influence into his campaign and bankroll him. Uh, he is a, a sympathizer with the communist government, the Chinese, who are a far greater threat, the same people who unleashed this virus on us. But that's okay. It's all okay. If anyone is acting like a totalitarian, it's the Biden regime. And it's not limited to these vaccine mandates. So before we go... I wanted to give you one other little issue. You may have read about this a few months ago, but there's a little article that just came out today in the Times, the Epic Times, which I read. Now, the Epic Times, of course, will be dismissed by most of the mainstream media and left-wing people as a uh, conspiracy theorist magazine. See, anything that espouses an opinion they disagree with is therefore misinformation. That's how they're suppressing people on YouTube and Facebook saying, oh, you viol-. they're not calling it censorship. Well, you violate our misinformation policy. Well, who's to say it's misinformation because it's a narrative that you don't agree with that makes it misinformation? It can't be a difference of opinion. Well, how many of you heard about this? Remember when uh, it was discovered that the FBI, the Justice Department, was being used to intimidate parents who are questioning local school boards and protesting at the meetings? Don't they have a right to do that? Well, House Republicans now demand answers from the Education Secretary on the domestic terrorism letter and school closures. The House Republicans are demanding that Secretation, uh, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona explain, among other things, his involvement in a letter that advocated for the use of the FBI to quell parents protesting at local school board meetings. Quote, From the very beginning, the targeting of concerned parents 
has been nothing short of a witch hunt orchestrated by partisan demagogues in the White House. The Department of Justice and the Department of Education said Representative Virginia Fox, Republican from North Carolina, the top Republican on the House Education Committee. Now, she pointed out to newly surfaced emails from the National School Boards Association, the NSBA, obtained and publicized by pro-parental rights groups, Parents Defending Education. The emails appear to show, this is from the article in the Times, that the NSBA's September 2021 letter asking the Biden administration to treat disruptions at school board meetings as a form of domestic terrorism was crafted at Secretary Cardona's request. In what she described as a New Age McCarthyism, the letter prompted Attorney General Merrick Garland, remember that chap that Obama wanted to put in the Supreme Court? Thank God we dodged that one. To issue a memo directing the FBI to help address an alleged, quote, disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against teachers and school leaders. That memo remains in effect, even after the NSBA apologized for it and retracted the widely criticized letter. Fox says, It is abundantly clear to me that Secretary Cardona must answer to the Education and Labor Committee, Congress on the whole, and especially the American people. Anything less is an insult to the proud parents who want to better the education of their children. Now, in a separate letter um, that was sent to Cardona, the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Fox questioned why one million U.S. students had to face school closures at the beginning of 2022, despite $120 billion in federal funding specifically set aside to make sure public schools open safely for in-person instruction. They find that it's all a canard. Despite Democrats' claims to the contrary, these funds were not needed to reopen schools. Because of this, some schools are grasping at any project they can find on which to waste taxpayer funds, including indoctrinating students and staff with racist and diverse, uh, divisive, uh, divisive I- ideologies. So the reason why they say this, radical spending, the Democrats argued, was necessary for schools to reopen safely for in-person instruction, but data suggested that only 4% of that relief fund, $120 billion, was used as the vast majority of the schools reopened in the fall of 2021, proving the claims to be false. Well, one thing about government agencies, once you give them money, they don't like to give it back. They'll find a way to spend it, even if it isn't warranted. And so they want to play footloose and fancy free with the money and start bringing in all this happy horseshit, racist and divisive, critical race theory and all this nonsense. I mean, this is, talk about racist. This is a war on white people now. And these people just keep continually pushing this narrative. You had this idiot, Eric Adams, hires his brother. is going to be his head of his security because he says, I have to watch out for my safety in, in light of the rise of white supremacy. Are you kidding me? White supremacy in New York City? You've got to be joking. This is the same city that allowed riots to run rampant. Businesses ravaged. But God help those people who sat in Nancy Pelosi's chair on January 6th. Give me a break. Give me a break. 
But that's exactly what we're finding here. And as the head of the Department of Education, they went on to say, you cannot continue to sit idly by as families and students are left scrambling at the whim of special interests. By special interests, the lawmakers, the Republicans, were referring to major teachers unions that are pushing for remote schooling. These are your political allies blocking the schoolhouse door. I've said this on this program. If I were the mayor of New York City, I would so stick it up Mike Mulgrew's butt that he wouldn't know where it was coming from. I would make a contract with firms that specialized in real online learning, if that's what the teachers want. Be careful what you wish for. And though I might not be able to fire them because of the laws of New York State, I would unilaterally, because I have the authority if I'm the mayor, invoke the Taylor Law, find them all two days pay for every day you're out, tell them don't bother to come in, stay home if you want to have it that way, but you're not teaching anyone. I've got somebody else that's going to do it for us, do it better than you could because your remote schooling was pathetic. I can give you that from personal experience watching my son remotely learn last year when this pandemic first came upon us, this quasi-pandemic first came upon us, and I know it wasn't worth anything. But I'd hire somebody that knew how to do it. And I'd use the money I was taking from the teachers, two days paid for every day they're out, to pay for it. That's what you've got going on here. So overreach is the order of the day for the Biden administration. And uh, Sleepy Joe just doesn't know where he is. So we get back to I leave you with every day. You see Sleepy Joe. You see him making these pathetic speeches. We're all in this together. We each have to do our part. Bullshit. We're not all in this together. I don't know a single government employee that lost any money. They're not sitting home having to collect unemployment. They're not seeing their doors shuttered. Their doors are open. They're the ones that don't want to go to work. When I wanted to open my businesses, I was told I couldn't. I finally opened anyway. I said, screw them. They can't take me to the bankruptcy line. So who's the fascist? It's always been the Democrats. And there are no Democrats anymore. Because like Ronald Reagan, when I first started voting, I was a registered Democrat. And then I realized I was in the wrong party. The Democratic Party now is the Democrat Communist Party of the United States. Don't let anybody convince you of anything otherwise. For the Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury. Please leave us a review. We need them more than you know. Help us help you. Until next time. Thank you.